Welcome back, everybody. It is Encounter with God time here on Faith FM. We're about to get into our Bible study, which means that we are going to be looking at education, and we're going to be particularly looking at education carried on by Moses as we work through this particular uh, Bible study today. All right, before we do, a couple of text messages have come through. We need to get to our text messages. Uh, the first one is in relationship to alcohol, and we were talking about these new seltzer drinks uh, coming into Australia that are supposed to be healthy. Well, they kind of have that healthy twist to them <laughs> on their marketing and there's nothing healthy about them whatsoever at all. They're not even remotely healthy. And, that, of course, the danger of that is that people will drink them, you know, think they're healthy and then, of course, drink them to excess mm-hmm. and ruin their health. Yeah. Uh, they, carry da- they carry zero health benefits. They carry dangers for heart disease, diabetes, cancer, impotency, etc. Uh, so this is not something you want to be putting in your body, but um, somebody just wanted to comment that a drop of arsenic in a glass of health juice will still kill you. Oh. Not as does, doesn't doesn't matter how how healthy that smoothie is. Good uh, good metaphor. You drop some arsenic in there and you're done. Yep. Uh, arsenic's not that potent. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> We could think of, yeah, I won't even name things on the radio, I don't think, this morning that uh, we used to use back in the day, Fosdrun, Lucijet, I can't remember what we used to use when I was a kid, just absolutely lethal substances um, for pest control. Anyway, uh, another comment here. I was a Catholic for 30 plus years, according to many authors and researchers uh, on the Vatican. Um, they've been laundering money for a very, very long time. Mm. And this is actually true in that there are a lot of people out there who have been writing about this for a long time. In fact, one of the more recent popes, depending on how you define recent, of course, uh, was uh, Pope John Paul I who uh, came into power with a mandate to actually clean up the Vatican Bank. Um, he died 33 days later. Wow. Yes, so there's something to get your conspiracy juices running this morning. The guy's like, yeah, I'm going to clean up all the corruption in the Vatican Bank. 33 days later, he's dead. Um, and John Paul II came to power, of course. Uh, but anyway, um, the Vatican is divided into two parties, conservative and liberal, and the sacking could be political, and this is very, very true. Uh, that's pretty much every church. Yeah. Every church is divided between conservatives and liberals, Mm -hmm. and you have political things that take place. It is not the way it should be. It should not be that way, but it is that way. Mm -hmm. That's how we are as human beings. We should be like Jesus, not like human beings. Mm -hmm. Let's all endeavor to be like Jesus today. Amen to that. And not be like human beings. (laughs) All right, we have a Bible study to get into. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 31. We're studying about the law of God. And yesterday we looked at the role of the law of God in leading us to Christ. So the law of God has a role in leading us to Christ. We often look at the law of God as like, okay, the purpose of the law is to reveal what sin is. Well, it goes more than that. It's to lead us to Christ. Uh, We also looked at how the law was given to the Israelites to be read on regular occasions. So um, obviously, back in the day, this is very, very early on in Israelite history when very few people were literate. Uh, they were to get together once a year and read the law of God. It was a uh, camp meeting. They'd have camp meeting and they'd read the law together. The first five books of the Bible, that was the uh, the Bible that they originally had right at the very beginning. Uh, and so that's what they do. And uh, on seven years, that 
every seventh year they'd have a special occasion for that as well. And the idea was so that it would be passed on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, and everybody would be familiar with it. All right, Deuteronomy 31, bit of background context to this passage. Moses is going to die. Moses is not going to go into the promised land. Moses has been restricted from the promised land because of his sin in striking the rock. Uh, Many of you will know that story. And so it's kind of like, what do you do if you're Moses? You've been leading these people for 40-some years. You know that they have a natural tendency to very, very quickly leave off from the service of God and to walk away from God. You know they have a tendency to very, very quickly um, forget all of the things that God has done for them in the past and go, to, to go after idolatry. Yeah, very, he just, Moses describes them as rebellious. Yes, he does. <laughs> they have rebellious ways. All right, so if, you have, if you're a teacher and you have a rebellious classroom, and you are going to be moving on to another teaching appointment. What do you do with that classroom? And you know, how do you how do you do the handoff to the next teacher? Oh. You're going to try and make it as easy for them as possible, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. But you're going to tell all the rules. You're going to go through the rules again. Okay, you are, aren't them. you? Yes, you're going to go through the rules again. <laughs> all right. So let's have a look here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter thirty-one. Let's start in verse fourteen. Deuteronomy 31, verse 14. Renee, if you could read that for us. Mm -hmm. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, The time has come for you to die. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tabernacle, so that I may commission him there. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tabernacle. Yeah, keep going there a few more verses. Mm. And the Lord appeared to them in a pillar of cloud that stood at the entrance of the sacred tent. Verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, you are about to die and join your ancestors. After you are gone, these people will be will begin to worship foreign gods, the gods of the land where they are going. They will abandon me and break my covenants that I have made for them. Verse 17. Then, uh, yeah, let's stop there for a moment. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about this. Okay, so your school principal. Hmm. You've got a teacher who has been dealing with a very, very difficult classroom. Mm-hmm. That teacher is now about to move on. Somebody is about to take their place. Moses is about to move on and Joshua is about to take his place. And you're the school principal and you know that this is, it's kind of like that. You know how every every school has that one class? That one class. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to belong to that one class. <laughs> Ah, dear, I think back on my poor school teachers. I think they used to shake their heads at our class. But, hey, it is what it was. Um, And, uh, yes, do feel feel very sorry, particularly for some of our classes within that class. There were certain subjects, I think that was music class. We went through three teachers in one year. Oh, dear. I've repented in sackcloth and ashes since then. Amen. And, and you've uh, turned your life around. Look at you now. The Lord has forgiven me. I found grace. I have found since. I have since found grace. I'm not sure whether the teachers that 
resigned after one quarter of teaching that class. I'm not sure whether they know that I've found grace or appreciate the fact. I hope they have. Uh, Certainly would have, if I ever had the opportunity, would apologize. But, um, okay, so there's kind of a handoff here, isn't there? Mm Mm-hmm. And so what God is doing is like, okay, this is this class and this is what they're going to do. As soon as Moses walks out the door, they're just going to rebel. Yeah, that's just who they are. They're just going to rebel. And they're going to rebel against me. They're going to rebel against the school. They're going to rebel against everybody. They're going to rebel against you, Joshua. All right, keep reading. Uh, Verse 17, then my anger will blaze forth against them. I will abandon them, hiding my face from them, and they will be devoured. Terrible trouble will come down on them. And on that day, they will say, these disasters have come down on us because God is no longer among us. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. So all that bad thing is going to happen, and who are they going to blame? God. It's kind of funny how whenever something bad happens in the natural world, we call it an act of God. In fact, I think we should start a. Uh, I think we should start a new movement. Yeah. I think we should. Well, I think we should start a petition to get all the insurance companies to rewrite their insurance policies so that there's no longer any acts of God. <laughs> there's only acts of Satan. Yeah. Why would you insure against an act of God? Mm. I don't want to insure. I don't want insurance against an act of God. God has done many acts in my life, and I'm super thankful for all of them. I like the acts of God. In fact, there are many acts of God that God has done in my life that have saved me from making an insurance claim. Mm. So I think the insurance companies should be super thankful for acts of God. I think they need to rewrite their policies and they need to talk about acts of Satan. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Not a bad idea. So when the hurricane, the tornado, the pandemic, whatever it is that comes by, let's call it for what it is. This is not an act of God. This is an act of Satan. Put the blame where it belongs. And God knows this. Mm. He's like, yeah, you know, this. they're a rebellious bunch. They're going to they're gonna leave off from serving me. They're even going to have insurance companies somewhere in the future that are going to call everything that Satan does what I'm doing. How backwards is that? But God knows the future and he knows humans and he knows how humans humans go. And so he is uh, he's kind of warning them there. Let's have some more verses from this passage. Um, yes. And it says at verse 18, At that time I will hide my face from them on account of all the evil they, have co- they commit by worshipping other gods. Uh, so write down the words of this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Help them learn it so they may serve at, so it may serve as a witness for me against them. Okay, okay, let's stop there. Number of points that we need to consider uh, as we work down through here so far. Um, somebody's texting in to say that um, they absolutely agree. Act of Satan. Yes. Right, let's, 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 we, should, we should so make this a thing. We should, we should so petition all insurance companies to change their policies. Mm. Uh, we, what, we, what were we talking about? We were talking about um, how God will, the Bible says, hide his face from them. Mm. I, think it, I think that was the language or something similar to that. He will withdraw his presence. Why does God do this when they go into idolatry? You could kind of build an argument from this that God just gets angry and storms out the door. Yeah. Or you could also build an argument that God never forces anyone. 
And I guess when you make your choice, God can't, you know. If God forces people, love doesn't exist. Exactly. You you can't have love. and Love and force are two things that are mutually exclusive from each other. You can't have those two things existing within the same realm. It's like, you know, light and dark. You switch the light on, darkness cannot exist. But what does exist with love is freedom. Freedom Exactly. Exactly. Mm. And so if they're like, well, you know, we're going to worship Canaanite gods, God's not going to stand in their way because he's a God of love. So when it says he's hiding his face, is he abandoning his people or what? why does he use that language? Yeah, it's a very good question. Basically, it works a little bit like this. If they choose to worship Baal, hmm. they've made a choice. God is now not in a position where he can intervene without forcing their hand. Okay. And at the moment that he forces, love ceases to exist. And so, as you know, God simply hides his face and is like, okay, you want Baal to look after you, you want Baal to protect you. Um, have fun with that. It's not going to go well for you. All the best with it, but this is your choice. Yeah. And so, God allows them to have their choice and allows them to do uh, what they want to do. But when you turn over to Satan, Satan has no love for his own. Yeah. Satan hates you. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, I'm going to become a Satanist and Satan's going to protect me. No, he's not. Mm-mm. His one object is to kill you in as painful a way as possible. That's what he enjoys doing. So, um, you know, when we turn away from God, we limit God's power to be able to intervene. Hmm. It's only as we come back to God that God is able to intervene in our lives once again. There's some other things there that, uh, that you read through. Um, as a part of that. Um, it says, so as a response, God says, so write down the words of this song. Yes. Ah, like- oh, let's stop there. Yeah. Write down the words of this what? Song. Song. Mm. That's interesting. Yes. Why do you think the Torah is a song? The law of God is a song? I mean... My first thought is like, I guess with songs, it's easier to remember and to recall. Absolutely. My first first thought too. Mm. I can remember the words to songs all over the place, but yeah, just a straight, uh, what do you call it, prose or script or whatever, is harder to memorize. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to take the whole of the Old Testament and put it to song. That's going to be quite a challenge, uh, but it's going to make it easy to remember. So I like that. Write down the words of this song. God calls the Bible a song. It's a love song. It's God's love song to us. All right, keep going. And teach it to the people of Israel. Help them learn it so they may serve, so it may serve as a witness for me against them. Ah, okay. All right. I do want to I do want to ask some questions about this one. Why does the Bible say that the word of God is a witness against us? I thought the word of God was all for us. Here the Bible says it's against us. What's that all about? It sounds like it's a it's a witness against us if we go it if we act against it. I feel like like it's it has the Bible is a standard. It's it's consistent. It's this criteria in a sense. I hate using that word, but yeah. And um, I guess if you're turning away from God, you're going against everything it says. And so God is like, here, I'm I'm a fair God. I'm I stick to the truth and. 
it, I guess it just, yeah, it sort of just measures, shows that we don't measure up in a way. Absolutely. I like the word criteria. It's a, it's a, um, it's a bit of a scary word when you mix scary. it with grace. Yes. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. You just said criteria? Yeah. But it is. There is a criteria to receiving grace, and that is accepting Jesus Christ. He will never force you. Mm. There's no such thing as God forcing some people into heaven and forcing other people into condemnation. It just simply does not exist. There are many people in our world today who said, no, God is all about force. God just chooses who he's going to save, and he chooses who he's going to uh, destroy, and we have no role in that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is love. And love only exists where the power of choice exists. Uh, the, the power of choice that creates the reality of love. Okay, so why is it a witness against us? Because when we choose to walk away from God, then we're no longer under the protection of God. We are now under the non-protection of Satan. And so... Acts of Satan, which are often called acts of God, but acts of Satan are going to happen. We're going to complain about that, but whose fault is it? Mm-hmm. There's a whole Bible here that is witnessing, I told you which way to go. Yeah. You chose not to. And that's exactly like in the previous verses that we read it, like God says that the people will say these disasters have come upon us because God is no, no longer um, with us. And so that's kind of... In that context, you understand that God isn't saying the Bible is a witness against us in general. He's just saying that when we choose to turn away from him and when disasters come upon us, um, that the Bible serves as a witness to remind us that God isn't against us, We've, but in fact that we've turned away and we've worshipped other gods. Yes, indeed. All right, where do we get up to? What verse are we up to? We are up to verse 20. All right, let's read a few more verses then. For I will bring them into the land I swore to them to give their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. There I will become, there they will become prosperous, eat all the food they want and become fat. But they will begin to worship other gods. They will despise me and break my covenant. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. The Bible says they will come into a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, they're going to come into tremendous amount of prosperity. And when they get there, what's going to be the result? Well, they will be prosperous and they will eat all the food they want and become fat and they will worship other gods and despise God. There is an implication within this passage that they are moving into a life of ease yes. and luxury. Mm. A life of ease where they don't have to work so hard anymore. They can just sort of sit around and eat food. And if you just sit around and eat food, what happens? You get fat. You get fat. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So from a physical perspective, but also from a spiritual perspective. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Getting back to our Bible study, we have been talking about this passage from Deuteronomy where God is kind of doing this handover from one school teacher to the next, from Moses to Joshua, and he has a troubled classroom, and so he's telling Joshua a little bit about it. Now, of course, Joshua is not ignorant to this. But God is putting it on record. There's like, this is the handover that I did, and we're putting this on record so that uh, you can know um, that I have actually stated this in case you know it's, it is going to happen. Mm. Know that I have stated it. Yeah. There we go. The phones are buzzing away already. Let's <laughs> see if someone can snap this one up. All right. 
Uh, where did we get up to? We got up to verse 21. All right, let's keep going. Okay. And when great disasters come down on them, this song will stand as evidence against them, for it will never be forgotten by their descendants. I know the intentions of these people, even now before they have entered the land I swore to give them. Verse 22. So that from that very day, Moses wrote down the words of the song and taught it to the Israelites. Then the Lord commissioned Joshua, son of Nun, with these words. Be strong and courageous, for you must bring the people of Israel into the land I swore to give them. I will be with you. Keep going. Keep and when going. Moses had finished writing this entire body of instruction in a book, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. Take this book of instruction and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant for the Lord your God, for it so it remains there as a witness against the people of Israel. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Moses writes it all up. Yes. He writes it up as a song. And he teaches it. He teaches it, and then where does he put it? It says, placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. All right. So if it's beside the Ark of the Covenant, whereabouts is the Ark of the Covenant? What is the Ark of the Covenant? And and what is this? What, what message can we learn from this? What is it kind of saying? Hmm. So let's start by talking about the Ark. What's the Ark and where is it? Well, the Ark of the Covenant, it should be in the most holy place in the temple, the tabernacle. That's right. And of course, this one is not a is not a boat. Uh, uh, Renee's looking at me like, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, what? Why? What is Lyle talking about? Boat. <laughs> yes. The other ark in the Bible is a boat. Oh yes, yes it is. Yes. And the reason I clarify this is because I've had a few people ask me this question. Like, wait a minute, there was a boat in the temple? No, there wasn't a boat in the temple. <laughs> Uh, the first ark was, of course, Noah's ark. This one is the ark of the covenant. This was a golden chest. So yes. think of better, a golden box. Yeah, it's in the most holy place. It contains. It's built to contain the holy law of God. That is the Ten Commandments. Mm. This is uh, what is often referred to as the law of Moses or the ceremonial law or the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, whatever you want to call it, uh, written up in a book and placed beside the ark. So why do you think it's not placed inside the ark, either on top of or underneath the Ten Commandments? Why Why on the side? Maybe not to, to show not to replace the law of God. Yes, yes. Um, but it's very important, I guess. Absolutely. So I think by placing it, you're absolutely correct. So by placing it in the most holy place beside the ark, mm. it's showing it to be something of, Tremendous importance. Yes. However, there is a difference between the Ten Commandments and the and the ceremonial law. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many things in the ceremonial law that we need, we no longer do. So, for example, we no longer keep the feast days. We no longer sacrifice animals. We no longer have a temple that we worship in. We worship in a church. Why don't we sacrifice animals anymore? Because Jesus has uh, was the ultimate sacrifice. Absolutely, Jesus already he, he has fulfilled that, mm. and so Jesus brought that system to an end. And so when Moses places it beside the ark, Moses is indicating yes, this is something of phenomenal importance, but it's not on the same level as the Ten Commandments, is it? Yeah. Has Ten Commandments ever come to an end? No, no, no. Will the Ten Commandments ever come to an end? No. <laughs> 
Has the Ten Commandments ever not been there? No. No, the Ten Commandments, the Bible says, is eternal. Yeah. Always will be there. Always has been there. Never has not existed. And it's the Ten Commandments aren't a result of sin. They haven't come up because we have Yeah, yeah, sinned. absolutely. They've been there since since the beginning. In fact, if you go to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, uh, we can find a verse on that. I think that's a really good point that you made there, is that the Ten Commandments did not arise because of sin. Now, the ceremonial law arose because of sin. If, if sin had never existed... So Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1 is where we're going to go. If sin had never existed, would there ever have been a ceremonial law? Would there ever have been sacrifices? No. If we had never sinned, no. Where there is no sin, there is no death. Mm. That simple. All right, 5 verse 1. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He represents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. All right, notice that he offers offers sacrifices for their sin. So the ceremonial law is there for your sin. The Ten Commandments, which is the centerpiece of the Ark of the Covenant, defines what sin is. Mm. There's a difference between those two. And God very, very clearly shows the difference between the two, the importance of both and the difference between the two when he places one as the centerpiece of the ark and he places the other on the side. He does not ever want us to stop studying the ceremonial law because the ceremonial law is all about Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, he wants us to also recognize that the ceremonial law was temporary. It only existed because of sin and it will disappear, uh, well, it disappeared when Jesus died on the cross, bringing it to an end and nailing it to a cross. So two very different laws here. It kind of reminds me of the bullseye that God has drawn on our world. You know, our world has a bullseye on it. It has a bullseye to show us what God considers to be most important. So think about this. We have the world. In the world, so that's like the outer ring of the bullseye is the world. In the world, you have the holy land, Israel. Within the holy land, you have the holy city, Jerusalem. Within the holy city, you have the holy mountain. On the holy mountain, you have the holy temple. The temple has a courtyard and then a holy place and then a most holy place. See the bullseye coming in closer? Mm -hmm. And then the centerpiece of the most holy place is the holy ark of God and the centerpiece of the holy ark of God is the holy law of God. God is shining a light onto that one thing that he considers to be most important, that he would love for us to know off by heart, inside out, back to front, upside down, because its purpose is to reveal our sin and our need of a Savior and point us to Jesus Christ. The Bible says it is a school teacher to point us to Christ. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. All right, so um, it is now time for... Question of the day. Okay, and the question is, what is the link between Daniel 8 and 9? Okay, so this is a really big question. I'm going to try and get through as many links as I can. Um, There's 24 links between these two chapters, so you can't separate the two. They are actually one chapter separated by a bit of time in between. Okay. There's not a lot of time in between, but there is some time in between. 
uh, and there's some reasons why there's time in between. But uh, what we're going to look at is that Daniel chapter 9 is simply a continuation of Daniel chapter 8. Now, to understand it, to begin with, we need to summarize chapter 8. We don't have time to read it, so we'll summarize. In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel has a prophecy of a ram, a goat, a horn, and a time period. So that's a, a short summary of the prophecy. Then what happens is, after seeing this in vision, he has a conversation with an angel by the name of Gabriel. And so Gabriel comes to him, and Gabriel explains to him in very, very explicit detail exactly who the ram is, exactly what the two horns on the ram symbolize, exactly who the goat is, exactly who the horn symbolizes, exactly what the four horns are, and exactly what the little horn is, then explains exactly how long the time prophecy is, and explains exactly what will happen at the end of the time prophecy. Now, the end of the time prophecy is the beginning of the judgment, which takes place at the end of time. All right, so he gives all of these details exactly. And in Daniel 8 and verse 14, talking about the time prophecy, he says, Unto 2,300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This is very, very interesting language because he's giving a time period. He's giving an unto, unto this particular point, but he's not giving a from. So typically in our language when we give a, a time period, we will say it is from here unto here. That's our time frame. And uh, uh, there's no from here. And this is the only detail that is left out of the prophecy. There's a very detailed prophecy, very clearly explained. We know exactly what is taking place, but Gabriel leaves out one detail. A little bit like one of these people that uh, you know gives you a recipe and leaves out one secret ingredient. He's left out the secret ingredient, the from, the starting date. And without a starting date, a time prophecy is pointless and it is Useless, And the important thing, of course, about the time prophecy here is that Gabriel plainly says that it is all about the time of the end. Verse 17, he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. He said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. So we know that it's about the time of the end. We also know that it's about the sanctuary. Now, at this particular time point in the history of Israel, the sanctuary was in ruins, and Daniel was praying three times a day that that sanctuary be restored. So this is something very close to Daniel's heart. And at the end of the prophecy, the Bible says that he was sick for certain days. He couldn't understand the vision. He couldn't understand anything about it. The Bible says, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for a number of days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business. I was astonished at the vision, but no one understood it. Well, what didn't he understand about it? He understood exactly who the ram was, exactly who the goat was, exactly who the little horn was, exactly how long the prophecy was, and exactly what would happen at the end. What do you mean he didn't understand it? He didn't understand it because he didn't have a start date. Yeah. Without a start date, the prophecy is useless. Yeah. He doesn't know when it's going to end. He doesn't know when the sanctuary is going to be restored. He doesn't know when the judgment is going to take place. And he's so concerned about it, it's making him sick. And so in Daniel chapter 9, what happens, you find, is that Daniel comes back. He starts to pray about the cleansing of the, the sanctuary. He starts to study the Bible. He's studying the time prophecies in the Bible. He's trying to find anything that will shed light on the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. And uh, then, uh, and, and you can read his, his prayer. He prays to God. His prayer begins in, in chapter 9 and verse 4. And he confesses his sin down to verse 17, in which he begins his request. 
Uh, and he says, hear, the pro- hear, hear your servant's supplication, your request, and cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary that is desolate. Um, and, you know, etc., etc. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and making my request. So while he's making his request, what happens? Um, confessing the sin of the sin of my people and the sin of Israel, presenting my request before the Lord my God. And notice what it says here, for the holy mountain of God, for the temple. That's what he's praying for because that's the one thing in chapter 8 he doesn't understand, the part about the temple. He's praying for the temple. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, the same man I had seen at the beginning of the vision, in the vision at the beginning, being caused to what flies swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. So notice what happens. He is praying about the vision of chapter 8. And while he's praying about the vision of chapter 8, the same angel comes back to finish explaining. Uh, He informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and understanding. I didn't give it to you before, but now I will. Well, what's Gabriel referring to? He can only be referring to chapter 8. There are no other options. Uh, Then he continues on in verse 23. At the beginning of your request, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So notice what happens. Right here, Daniel is commanded to stop and to think about the vision. Gabriel says, look, Stop and think about the vision. What vision is that? You've only got one option. It's chapter 8. So these are all the links that you're getting all the way through here. I think we've covered 5 out of 24 so far. Um, Then he continues on. Verse 24, 70 weeks are cut off for your people. Okay, to cut something off, you have to have something longer to cut it off of. Right? So you've got 2,300, that's your only option, and you're now cutting 70 weeks off. A bunch of things to happen there. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that, and here comes that word, from. There's your from, from the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now you have a from the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. There's about five out of about 24 links between these two chapters. You cannot separate them. It is absolutely impossible. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.